Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. In the studio with me, though, is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What a pleasure to see you in here on this fine Sunday morning. I know. But you seem perky. You you walked a long way right before coming in. Yeah, yeah. I just had a little bit of time up my sleeve, so I went for a bit of a walk. And, you know, it's one of those Melbourne days. It's a bit windy and a bit uh, a bit warm, but I don't know. You just think, gosh, I like living in this city. There's people <laughs> everywhere doing all sorts of interesting things. And, yeah, I'm feeling good. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a bit hay fever out there. It though. is, yeah. If we snuffle yeah. everybody, we do not have COVID. We've just both got hay fever from the wind outside. Yeah, but I would say don't leave the washing out too long, Marge, because uh, it is gonna, it's going to hit the fan this afternoon. It's going to be rainy. And it back sure back to winter. Oh, it's, isn't it just been unbelievably Melbourne-like? I feel like any tourists who are currently here are just getting the full Melbourne experience. One day it's freezing and the next day it's really hot. I know, I know. <laughs> and... Uh, are you, you know, taking a big break over the summer? I am, Dr. Shane. I'm going to take a bit of a break. I'm feeling a bit weary, like I think many uh, people are currently. So a bit of bush time, a bit of beach time, looking forward to some walking and running and swimming. And, yeah, I'm feeling very lucky to be able to take a break. How about yep, you? I'm good. We were just filming in time there because Dr. Jen noticed <laughs> that I just leaned over and turned down the aircraft-size HEPA filter that we it's have here loud. in the studio, which is quite loud, <laughs> but, you know, makes us feel safe. And, Does that uh, mean you didn't actually? care about me having a summer break and that was just you feeling your time well thanks like, dr what, shane what you do in your own time is your business dr jen uh but yeah thank, thank you for that update my uh, pleasure i don't have an answer to you with regards to the summer break yet but i'm working on it good so something i'm going to talk about breaks later in the show how <laughs> yeah, important they good. are dr shane he's looking at you oh, indeed and lib's doing a twitter feed which is great Woo-hoo! she's been traveling around the world i don't know where she's been somewhere in the u.s i think uh vegas probably Sure. She's been sure. hanging out in New York and reckons that's her new hanging home, isn't that right, things. But we have our first guest actually on the line with us already. Dr. Rachel Nelligan is a physiotherapist and postdoctoral research fellow in the Centre for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine at the University of Melbourne. Good to have you back, Rachel. Nice to be back, Shane. Thanks for the invite. Now, we should uh, just give people a bit of uh, background there because Rachel was one of our 20 and 20 PhD students Woo-hoo. about 18 months ago, I think, and uh, somehow you didn't screw it up and we asked you to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that was, was that a good experience? I mean, it was pretty, uh, pretty fast-paced, wasn't it? It was. It, it was fantastic, though. I think... Um, there was a, a great cohort and, and people don't get to, to see it on the radio, but behind the scenes there's a, a lot of chit-chat that happens and, and wonderful support that, that all of the PhD students give each other. So it was, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It's funny. I, I remember back when we ran the first 20 and 20, it was in the you know before times, um, before the pandemic. And, of course, everyone was here at the studio and we had like a two-hour communication workshop before the show and and then I think Chris KP was here and he was guiding people in one at a time like a little conga line in and out of the <laughs> studio um, but of course there wasn't the zoom chat feature so they couldn't really support each other beyond the sort of pat on the back as they walked past the person leaving the studio and they were next and I think maybe there's a note version we can hand out they could hand each other notes or something but it doesn't quite everyone work. just needs to carry a little box of, you know a little thing of post-it notes so you can just yeah. hand them to people as they come out <laughs> I mean the zoom feature the chat feature is so useful yeah. isn't it yeah and I so I, I of course you know print out the, the chat after do you guys do it? And there's like 12 pages of encouraging comments between you. I'm reading all this thing going, my goodness, these people. But uh, you know, focus on the show, people. But uh, no, that was great. It's great to see so much um, sort of joy between PhD students supporting each other. For what I think for the majority of you was your first time on radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was for me. Yeah, yep. yeah. Now, you've, you've now moved on, finished your PhD. Uh, you've got a postdoc position there at Melbourne Uni and you're, you're physically in Adelaide. I'm not sure how exactly that works for a, a physio uh, person, but, you know, that's sort of long, long arms, right? <laughs> very, very long arms. I'm, I'm lucky my work is mainly in digital health. So. Right. Yeah. yeah now, 
Now, tell us about that because we, you and I were both at an awards ceremony, the Research Australia Awards gala dinner on Thursday night. Thankfully, we were upwind of any potential pathogens. We were sitting in the corner and there was like a, a, a real exhaust fume of air flowing past us, which was great. But uh, you, you were one of the uh, recipients of one of the commendations at that event. Tell us what that was for. Yeah, um, and a great honour. Um, fantastic to be at that event, a wonderful event. Um, great air conditioning, great ventilation, as you said. <laughs> um, but the award was for the work that I have done developing patient resources for people with osteoarthritis and specifically knee osteoarthritis. And this was my PhD work where we developed a exercise program that people could do self-directed. They could get recommended exercises and good quality, up-to-date education about what osteoarthritis is from a website. Mm-hmm. Then that would be supported by a text message program, which would provide people with encouragement and also help address barriers and facilitators to the exercise that they were doing from the website. And we had um, we conducted a RCT, a randomised control trial of, of this intervention. And we found it was effective and meaningful, uh, meaningfully effective on pain and function outcomes in people with knee osteoarthritis. And since then, we've had some really good impact making this program freely available. And we've had over 20,000 people engaged with the program to date. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. One of the things that I saw when you sent me through your information about this program was in there, the, this was the 12th highest contributor to global disability. I was quite um, stunned to hear that. I, I wasn't aware of that. No, and it, and that was another you know, fantastic thing about getting an award at this event is often osteoarthritis can be trivialised. You know, it can be thought of as just a condition that people get as they get older, mm. but um, we know that isn't the case. Uh, it is more prevalent in older people but also occurs in young people. But... Um, has significant burden um, and we have $23 billion of the um, Australian economic dollars going towards osteoarthritis yeah. every year. So it does have a significant impact on the individual and society. Yeah. Now let, let's talk about the condition itself. I mean, what is actually going on in the joints and so forth when you start developing osteoarthritis? Yeah, and I think we in, within the joint, there, there can be inflammation, there can be changes within the joint, but we, we do know with most pain conditions now as well that there is much more happening and uh, the experience of pain can be impacted by your sleep quality, your diet, your mood, the, uh, your catastrophizing, your worry uh, about your symptoms as well. So even though there are um, some inflammation, some changes happening to the tissue, we know that the pain from osteoarthritis actually comes from many more contributing factors than the joint alone. Mm. And this is why we no longer um, suggest that uh, people need arthroscopes to you know, clean out the joint because we know the condition just isn't a joint condition. Um, we're doing exercise, strengthening the muscles, but also improving diet and sleep, having a, a more holistic view of the condition is, is the key. Yeah. Is it something that's easy to diagnose? Is that through like reporting of pain and, and restrictions in movement or is it something that you get an x-ray for and you can see it clearly? Yeah, and that recommendations have changed um, and you know people do believe they need an X-ray, but the, the clinical guidelines, the recommendations now is an X-ray isn't needed and an MRI isn't needed, blood tests aren't needed. So osteoarthritis can be diagnosed via clinical criteria. So if someone has had pain in the joint that is activity-related, um, they've had morning stiffness that lasts less than 30 minutes, and that's to differentiate between other arthritis like rheumatoid arthritis where stiffness can last longer, um, and also if you're over 45 years of age. Uh, and if you've got pain in the, the joint that meets those criteria, you, you will receive a diagnosis of osteoarthritis in that joint. Interesting. Now, with the with the sort of um, the management tool, the digital resource that you put together, one of the things I'm curious about is how you get people to engage. Because I, I saw my you know new myotherapist a few weeks back and she gave me a link to some website. And <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a combination of having gone to a lot of crappy links before or just laziness or or the fact that she worked on me really well and I feel a bit better so I don't think I should have to do it. But I just haven't engaged with it. And I, I feel bad about that and I'm a bit scared that when I go back and see her again, the first thing she will ask is, how would you go to that link? And I'll say, 
Not so great. You're going to be in trouble, Doctor Shane. I'll be in trouble. So how do you how do you get people to you know? There's so many of these things online. How did you get them to engage with it? Yeah, and I, I think probably in, in many different ways. So the the program when we did qualitative research, so we interviewed people that had used the program. Uh, an important uh, factor for them was it was designed by a credible source, a, a reputable source, the University of Melbourne, and osteoarthritis researchers and physiotherapists. But I think the website is also, during the clinical trial, it was coupled with text messages. We've now turned that text message program into a, an app so that people can access it for free, whereas text messages, there mm-hmm. would have um, potentially been a cost. So because the website exercises are coupled with an app that asks people to regularly log their exercise, it also addresses barriers. So if people are finding it hard to stick to their exercises and they report that within the app, it will send them out um, what behaviour change technique suggestions, which are really suggestions how to help them address the particular barrier that that they were receiving doing their exercise. So I think that really helped. I think the program is also being um, given out by health professionals. And as you said, Shane, you know, you're you're already feeling guilty that, oh, I haven't looked at that link. and, And that guilt might just get you to look at the link and start the program before you see that health professional again. <laughs> there's a, there's a certain <laughs> chance. So, Rachel, just following from that, because Shane's question was also something I was really interested in, how did you decide what kind of process to use in terms of the text messages and addressing the barriers? Were you working with psychologists or is there sort of best practice advice out there about how to design these interventions in a way that are most likely to lead to success? Yeah, so we we used a um, a behaviour change model called the behaviour change wheel or the COMB model, which is capability, opportunity, motivation, um, behaviour. And I received training from um, the people that developed this program from the University of London. And also we had a a behavioural scientist helping us, uh, Dr Lou Atkins as well. So we did, as physiotherapists um, and osteoarthritis experts, we brought the information about osteoarthritis and then we worked with the behaviour change experts to help us put that program together. Yeah. Collaboration at its best. I love it. It's interesting. Now, one of the things that uh, I did want to touch on before we go is the sort of aspect of pain that often comes up. And I think some listeners will know I'm going to hit this pretty hard in, in 2023. But for the majority of the um, the health system, the way in which pain is addressed for men and women is quite different. And yes. so to put it bluntly, women generally aren't um, listened to and believed anywhere near as much as men. Now, I've often said that if you grab physios, optometrists and dentists, you'll grab the three um, health professionals that spend the most time with patients and listen the most, maybe not so much dentists because there's stuff in your mouth, but you know they, they tend to <laughs> listen more because they have more time. Is there like anything in what you've developed that sort of helps counter for that? Because I can imagine a lot of women are used to having their pain minimized and not, you know, addressed effectively, um, sometimes for decades. Does that, does that come into play in what you're doing? I think, um, and I think this is a big um, area for me as well. As a clinician, I'm also a pelvic health specialist. So right. I do work a lot in, in women's, um, women's pain conditions, but I, I think, in osteoarthritis, it is more prevalent in women as well. And I think this resource does improve access to good quality, reliable information about osteoarthritis. So if people are, are potentially not getting the information that they, they need from their health professional, if women are, are not having their pain listened to, they are able to go online and find a, a good quality resource for free where they can get information to, to help them um and i think you know it's not ideal but you know there's a lot of misinformation on the internet and the more reliable information we can have that people can access themselves to help them self-manage i think that the better so hopefully it does help women in in that way fantastic and rachel where do people go to find this like if you're to um, direct them i'm sure in some cases it's via their physios and doctors but where, where should they go to have a look yeah, um, on, on our University of Melbourne site, Chesm, you can um, log on to that online and, and there'll be a section for patient resources and clinician resources. So we do have a, a range of free digital resources for both clinicians and patients for osteoarthritis management. So lots of, of stuff people can look at there. For this particular program, head online to www 
myneexercise.org.au. And then within that website, you'll be able to see a link as well to the um, app, which will help people stick to their exercises as well, designed with the behaviour experts. Fantastic. Well, if you tweet that at me, I will retweet it out for our audience today. Rachel, thanks so much for being our guest yet again on um, Einstein and Gogo. A little bit longer this time, but uh, it was great talking to you about your work. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Rachel, and congratulations again on your award. Great stuff. Thank you. Folks, that was Dr. Rachel Nelligan from the University of Melbourne Centre for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we'll be doing some news with Dr. Jen and Gracie all the way from Texas. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the line with us now is Gracie Finko, all the way from Texas. How are you going there, buddy? Good. How are y'all? <laughs> we, we're all good. <laughs> Have you recovered? You were unwell the other week. You're back to normal? Yes, yes, definitely back to normal. You know, it was funny. I had very flu-like symptoms, but COVID, flu, everything they did was negative. Mm. So I'm not sure what I had. The crazy Gracie fun. disease. Yeah, I'm not sure. I had bilateral sciatica and then had a lot of flu symptoms. So I was like, that's kind of a very strange combination. <laughs> so we ended up going to the ER just to make sure that everything was okay. And they basically sent me home with pain meds. So <laughs> and Bi- a high U.S. healthcare bill, of course. Oh, well, I bet. So. Yeah. Bilater- yeah. Bilateral sciatica. That doesn't sound fun, Gracie. No. No, it's not. It's like, I don't know if either of you have ever had sciatica. It's basically mm. like whenever your leg nerve is pinched, it, it feels like a pain in your butt, quite literally, but it like radiates down, down your, your, ankle. your leg. Yeah, yeah. And horrible. yeah, typically it's like somewhat normal to have it on one side, but to have it on both sides is a little problematic potentially, but I don't know. <laughs> it went away whenever my fever broke and nobody knows. So we'll see. Some some weird Texas virus <laughs> that you picked up. Yeah, <laughs> weird stuff. Anyway, yeah, this I'll is see. our uh, this is our news segment. The first piece of news, of course, was about <laughs> Gracie's health, um, which is interesting given we have no answers, just vague symptoms of yeah. If somebody problems. wants to, t- yeah. If somebody has any ideas, feel free to message me on Twitter, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, some news, Jen. What have you got for us? I want to talk about potatoes. Because, okay. you know, why not? Shane, are you, a, are you a potato eater? Do you like potatoes? In the form of chips, I can't be stopped. Ah, well, th- therein lies the problem. Do you like potatoes in any other form? Oh, yeah, I'll eat, I'll eat a good potato if it's well-cooked. <laughs> yeah, chip. Well, the, the reason I want to talk about this is because obviously a lot of people are quite interested in low or no carb diets at the mm-hmm. moment, particularly people who are trying to shift those extra COVID kilos. And potatoes have quite a bad rap. You know, people think, oh, potatoes bad, shouldn't eat potatoes. And in fact, there's been research in the past that has suggested that potatoes could be bad for us in the sense that there was some indication that they were linked with an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Ooh. So a lot of people are quite nervous about white potatoes. But there's a study that was published this week researcher at Edith Cowan University used data from a big long-term study called the Danish Diet, Cancer and Health Study. 54,000 people reporting their dietary habits and intake. And it's important that you notice that it's a Danish diet, cancer and health study because it turns out that the Danes eat a lot of potatoes and eat them in so many different ways that this study allowed them to separate out people eating boiled potatoes or mashed potatoes or potato fries or whatever it was. So you could actually separate it. It wasn't just you ate potato, but how did you eat your so potato? You, you had me so focused on thinking about food that when you first said <laughs> Danish. Oh, <laughs> I didn't think of the place. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is Danish people. Oh, Danish people. 54,000 Danish people. And basically what the study came out and showed is that potatoes don't have the same health benefits as other vegetables. So people who are um, eating lots of spinach and lettuce and broccoli and cauliflower, so leafy greens and cruciferous Mm. vegetables, you're going to have a significantly lowered risk of developing type 2 diabetes. But what they did find in this study is that the reason potatoes have got such a bad rap is because of how people are eating them. Potatoes in and of themselves, they've shown, have no um, increased risk of type 2 diabetes, so no negative health effects. The problem is that most people are either eating them as chips or eating them as mash when they're adding cream, milk, butter. So when Mm. they could separate out how people were eating their potatoes, the Danish people who were just eating boiled potatoes, there is now no indication. (laughs) Come on, boiled potatoes (laughs) with a bit of salt. Yum. Oh, Shane. Shane, (laughs) Shane, Shane. Anyway, I just thought it was a good study because, 
you know, it's very easy to just lump something over there and say this is always going to be bad mm. for us. We should never eat it. But actually, if you're going to if you want a carbohydrate source, if you're comparing something like potato with white rice, potatoes are actually very nutritious and really good for you. The other thing they uncovered was people who eat a lot of potatoes also tend to eat more red meat, drink more soft drink, have a lot right. more butter. So all of those things absolutely are known to increase type two diabetes risk. So I guess it's just a question of let's not pigeonhole things and mm. let's look at a study this big. 54,000 people where we can separate out things a little bit more and say, well, actually, potatoes in and of themselves, go ahead, eat them. They're actually quite good for you, not at the expense of spinach, but, you know, they're quite good for you. But just think about how you eat them, Dr. Shane, looking at you. (laughs) Will do. I was hoping you'd be able to say something simple, like, you know, if it grows below the ground, don't touch it. If it grows above, it's good for you, but it's more nuanced. I think it's more nuanced than that. I mean, all vegetables are good, right? The the key message of this study is the more vegetables you eat, the less likely you are going to develop type 2 diabetes. Yeah, I think we had had Felice Jacker on uh, the other week from Deacon and I think she put some challenge out to eat eight or nine different types of vegetable. I can't remember why those. And my yeah. wife's trying to make me do this, and it's working. Well, it's meant and, to be 30 a week. You should 30 have 30 different, different, different plant. Well, no, just you know, plant foods right. in a week. So that could be nuts, seeds, vegetables, fruit, but 30 <coughs> a week, 30 different a week. And yeah. it's quite fun. You just put a little list up on the fridge. We did it with my kids, I don't know, half a year ago or something, and they add up pretty quickly. You eat an interesting salad, yep. put a few seeds on your cereal or whatever. Off you go. There you go. Hmm, interesting. Well, madam over there in Texas, Gracie, what have you got for us? Yes, I don't know if I can name that many vegetables. <laughs> I'm trying to sit here and think eight or Carrots, nine. That's like a lot. Pumpkin, yeah. potatoes. What else you got? Yeah. Leeks. Yeah, that's mm. about it for me. Yeah. Potato and leek soup. Delicious. Hmm. And you wonder why you've yes. uh, got bilateral sciatica. <laughs> I know, right? Maybe that's the cause. Maybe it's all in my diet. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So my news story this week is actually about NASA. So the Orion spacecraft flew past the moon on December 5th, and mm. now it is returning. And so it is actually set to land uh, noon, my time tomorrow. And I looked that up. That's about 5 a.m. on Monday. For us. Time. Yep. Um, yeah. So we'll see if it is successful in hitting the atmosphere at more than 30 times the speed of sound. It's fast. Yeah, it's super fast. So Mm. I'm excited to see it. It'll be really cool. Um, And then the next flight will be as early as 2024. um, And it'll carry about four astronauts around the moon is what they're thinking. Uh, And then for the next mission will be in 2025. It'll feature the first lunar landing by astronauts since the Apollo moon program ended about 50 years ago this month. So it's kind of interesting timing. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And one of the things that they did, of course, was they sent back a full Earth image which we haven't yes. seen since um, the Apollo 17 mission sent back one. And, and you think, ah, oh, full Earth image. Yep, no big deal there. Someone poked the camera out of the window and took a picture <laughs> of the full Earth. But the orientation has to be just right. It's yeah. actually, you know, I mean, the Earth is spinning and, and, you know, going around the sun. And, you know, you have to make sure that your craft is such that the sun is behind you, the Earth is in front of you, or vice versa, mm. so that the full sphere is illuminated in front of you. And then you see the whole thing. And, and the, the first image of that was taken by the Apollo 17 spacecraft and really changed society. There's actually an article this week in I The Guardian. I saw it, yeah, because it um, changed everything, right? It changed yeah. our whole perspective of this precious little dot we live on. Yeah, and, um, and that image, of course, had um, not you know the United States, sorry, Gracie, but it had Africa front and yeah. centre, Africa and um, Antarctica, and you could see parts that you don't normally think of as, as front and centre of, of the Earth. So they managed to get a really, some really cool pictures of that. There's actually another picture where you can see past the moon to the earth and if you have a look at that photograph and you compare it to the cover shot the poster shot for apollo 13 the movie it looks almost identical it's kind of i'm not sure if they planned that but it looks very close to identical so it's kind of cool but uh yeah artemis one doing its thing and the orion spacecraft which is part of it coming back tomorrow hopefully safely yes it's also just so crazy to me that we didn't know what the earth looked like until mm. that first image was taken. I remember asking my dad when I was little, I was like, what do you mean you've never seen a picture of the earth, you know, until like in your lifetime that became a thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a big deal, but uh, it is going to hit the atmosphere at very high speed, as you said, which means very high temperatures. So this is a test of the heat shield and all the aeronautics that go into keeping the craft stable so that it doesn't, you know, if it turns around while it's re-entering the atmosphere, it's game over. So 
testing a lot of right. um, technology. Let's cross our fingers and toes and hmm. things. <laughs> yeah. Thank Not you, if Gracie. it gives you sci- your sciatica back, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've been crossed off the list. You know, by even announcing that publicly, it means you're not going to be on that moon mission now because you can't be cramped no. up in there. You cannot be. I know you were hoping, but you cannot be cramped up in yeah. there and say, I've got some sciatica. I've got to go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think I could do that. Uh, just even mentally. I feel like I have a little bit of claustrophobia, you know? Um, so. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to have much claustrophobia to be in that small can for, you know, weeks it'll be this time around so um yes. yeah it'll be tough but anyway it's uh it's very cool stuff uh, people who follow me on twitter will know how obsessed i am with the um with <laughs> just, this but um just a little, just a little bit, bit obsessed but it's cool i mean the engineering and and so forth and the you know the tens and tens and thousands of people who worked on these missions to see that successful launch and hopefully successful return is is pretty cool stuff so thank you gracie you're going to hang around because we've got uh, your story Part two, I believe, coming up uh, soon. We'll have to give people a reminder of part one. It was a few weeks back. Folks, uh, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go. Welcome back, folks. Sunday morning. We've got about half an hour to go. Dr. Jen? Half an hour of fun and exciting science. Can't beat that. I know, which means there's only an hour and a half of Einstein to go go for 2022 left. And I believe Rachel was our last guest for the oh, whole Oh, she was our last year. guest. I forgot that. We yeah. cracked, I think, 100 guests this year again. Well, hats off to you, Shane. That's a lot of people to, you know, get organised and <laughs> chat with and ask exciting questions of, and it's, it's pretty amazing. Don't talk about it too much or you'll find me all curl up in the corner <laughs> and sort of start rocking backwards and forwards. Um, yeah. You've got another hour and a half of broadcasting left in you i'm very confident of that yep now uh gracie uh, a few weeks back you started off on a very exciting journey that we were talking about can you just recap what we spoke about quickly before we move on yes yeah so last time we talked about reproducibility and scientific research and so we talked about how there are kind of these inconsistent definitions of reproducibility across different fields of science. And we talked about a few different things that could contribute to this lack of reproducibility in research. So things like journal word count limits, so difficult to, you know, detail all of the methods. Uh, The author may not want to detail all of their methods so that they could stay competitive. Um, Interdisciplinary research, so there may just be too many different types of methods to all fit in the same article. And so things just have to get cut out. Um, And then, of course, we talked about slight differences in materials that the researcher can't control for, like different types of reagents from the company or breeds of mice. Um, Mm. For you, we talked about equipment and physics a little bit. And then we also talked about cognitive biases. Um, So basically also a significance bias as well. So not publishing results that aren't significant or novel because journals don't accept it. Mm. Um, And so I'd be interested to get uh, Jen's feedback kind of on all this as well and her thoughts because I know she wasn't there for the last one. Oh, look, it's something that I think everyone is talking about now because we're all really aware that there's some major problems out there in the in the research world and, and the biases that exist in terms of what does get published and what doesn't get published. And, um, yeah, I think it's a really important area and something that I know there are people, certainly at the university I work at, doing their own research on this whole mm. crisis and what we can do about it because it's we've got to be more aware of, of what uh, conclusions we're drawing and, and how uh, reasonable it is to draw such conclusions from our research. I think, too, Gracie, one of the things that we've noticed over the last couple of years, and radiotherapy touched on this very briefly earlier, is certain papers in highly controversial fields like around immunity and COVID at the moment, Mm. uh, one paper will be saying one thing and get enormous amounts of of media attention because of a few, you know, and I'll say it, so-called experts. Um, And then another paper saying the exact opposite, also published, sometimes in the same journal, sometimes in a different journal, will also get enormous amounts of media. And you say, well, where does that leave the public? Absolutely. Um, Or or even scientists in other fields. In other fields. Who are just like, well, I don't know which of these I should be paying attention to. And they lead to different outcomes and they lead to different responses. Yeah. And, And in this case, I think, you know, in many circumstances have led to literally led to deaths Mm. and it's not something that you can sort of really just assume there's nothing to be concerned about here like we do need more clarity around that and especially how quickly some of these things run out into the public space which is which is really problematic i get people do it because their careers depend on it 
But that's not the reason. That's no. not the reason that's adequate in the public health space. So, sorry, Gracie, we... Uh, we could rant for a we while. We went off we'll... on a tangent. <laughs> no, I love it. I'm also interested with both of your experiences in the research fields over several decades, like how that has changed, like the, the kind of conversation around reproducibility has changed over time, or has it? Chinese Gracie's saying we're old. <laughs> is that what I just heard? Well, I, I think she, when she was saying several decades, she might have been referring to, to you. Um, and she was going to come back to me with a larger number. <laughs> yeah, she's saying we're old. Yeah. Um, okay, just checking. It, look, it's interesting. I, I remember coming through um, – so when I came through my PhD, um, my supervisors at the time were incredibly strict on reproducibility. I mean, there was no way in the world they would let me publish off one result. Mm. Um, I had to do them hundreds of times before they would let that publication go through. So it was sort of there from the get-go back then in my physics career. You know, this stuff had to be... I remember talking to my supervisor about what a paper was, and he said, well, any scientist in the world with the right equipment should be able to reproduce your work and your results if they read your paper with no further information. That was his position. And I thought, whoa, okay, that requires me to put some honesty and so forth in there and some detail. And so as a result of that, I just came through thinking this was normal. It wasn't until decades later, I think it was probably in the psychological sciences I first heard about these problems cropping up where there was very severe issues. What about you, Mm -hmm. Jen? Oh, look, I think for me in terms of when I was actually doing research, it was a little bit different because I wasn't doing, you know, experiments in a lab that could be reproduced. Mm. I was spending years following animals around. So I guess the replicates there were the individual animals. But but I do think it's changed, Gracie, in the sense that, you know, for a long time we were all schooled to kind of think that as long as something had been published in a reputable peer-reviewed journal, it meant that it was a, a you know, we, we could trust it. Yep. Whereas I think now we know that just even if it has been um, published in a, in a high-impact factor journal and it has been peer-reviewed properly, that doesn't actually mean that it can be reproduced because research is, is very complicated and there can be all sorts of things going on. Mm. It's not even suggesting that a researcher themselves is doing anything wrong. There can just be factors at play that lead to particular results that nobody has recognised. And, you know, you hear about crazy things. I remember hearing a story once that took people a really long time to realise that because a new cafe had been built on the ground floor of this particular research building, the rats were all, you know, the rats who were being used in the experiments were responding to particular times of day when there was things being cooked and they could get it through the you know through mm. the um the ventilation system and you know that that's not a researcher being deliberately dodgy that's just not recognizing that there's a factor at play here that's influencing the results yeah so it, it's, it's, it's fascinating fascinating you say that because years ago when they were building the doherty institute in mm-hmm. parkville i remember talking to some of the nearby um lab heads around their animals and the animal models they used and one of the things of course they do quite often with animals is they measure hormone levels yeah and that's based often on fear. Mm, and absolutely. so there were a lot of vibrations in in that block as they were doing the excavation and so forth. And there was deep concerns that this would cause problems with mm. the results they were doing. So that is a great example of what you're talking about, where it's not necessarily the fault of the researchers doing the experiments. It may be the environment shifting in a way that they don't know about or can't yep. control for. Yep, so, exactly. Sorry, Gracie. <laughs> <laughs> right. No. And just to clarify, I wasn't trying to call you old. Um, I, <laughs> We're not the ones with sciatica. From, yes. Yeah. Yeah. This let's is all coming go for from a somebody walk. that. Yes. And I just got my limping. PhD earlier this year, so I, I would consider myself pretty young, pretty fresh. So <laughs> I'm just kind of hearing more about these reproducibility conversations. So I'm just kind of wondering, you know how long they've been going on and how they've changed over time, if so. Yeah, Um, since last century. I did come across... (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah, since last century. (laughs) Long time. Yeah, long time. I did come across some recommendations. Uh, So, and some of them would be fairly obvious to most people. Um, I think some of these things are just going to be really limited on how journals are constructed and how, you know tenure track positions are chosen and uh, just kind of the way that our academic reward system is based in general. Um, But the first one is thoroughly describe your methods. So Mm. that's pretty obvious, right? But that goes back to things that we just discussed. There are some environmental factors potentially that can't be accounted for. Um, Also, uh, publishing negative data. So, of course, that goes back to, is the journal going to accept it if there weren't any significant differences. Um, Publishing raw data sets or including raw data in 
like your supplementary files whenever you're uploading uh, kind of the submission. And then also pre-registration of studies. So, and this kind of makes more sense for clinical trials pre-registering the study, but of course it doesn't make sense in all disciplines, particularly like qualitative research or the things that Jen mentioned that she was doing in terms of observing animal behavior and things like that. Um, but I think this is probably a pretty good start in terms of some actionable things that we could do. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think you mentioned there, which for me is huge, is this idea of publishing negative data or the data where things didn't work. You know, we, we often, we have a publication system that is basically a record of only the things that were successful. And often not just successful, but highly significant. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if, if you go back and, and I think of all the things that I did during my research years that didn't work. And of course, they taught me a lot more than the stuff that did work. So, you know, you, you're kind of truncating the distribution of knowledge by not allowing that to be recorded, which is really quite limited, I think. Mm. Right. And I think, too, then you're just kind of perpetuating the cycle of people are continuing to repeat those experiments, not knowing that <laughs> that was already not successful before. So. Mm. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think we have a we have a system that is uh, not quite fit for purpose in the modern age, and we have so much access to data and availability of data and ability to distribute it that it shouldn't be like that. We should be able to, you know, promote the you know the journal. Maybe we should start a new journal, Jen. The Journal of Failed, failed Experiments. Well, people have tried that. I mean, yeah. there are journals out there with the way they encourage you to, you know, to publish negative results. But mm. I think what you're saying is true, Shane. On the one hand, that's happening. But at the same time, there's this parallel pressure, which is more and more people in a system where there's less and less money. Yeah. So more and more people feeling absolutely compelled that, you know, I'm not going to get this grant or I'm not going to get this scholarship or I'm not going to have this postdoc opportunity unless I pull out these amazing results. And that becomes, you know, it's just a terrible self-fulfilling prophecy that mm. things – you know, it's it's not always the most learning that we can do. It's just how can I publish something that's going to get into this journal? Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that as with any industry, there'll be a few nefarious players. There always are. But, but, but they're not, not the majority. Exactly. They're not the majority. Uh, they're a very, very small number. The majority of people actually, as you say, just have, you know, various things that are often hard to mm. get right first time out and, or you know, hard to nail down all of the parameters that, that might be there. So I think there's uh, – there's a retelling of that story that needs to happen, isn't there, Gracie, that sort of indicates where the problems are and where the sources are. And as you say, many of them are coming from the fact that these journals are, generally speaking, big businesses. Absolutely. Right, yeah. And I'm not sure how much time we have left, but I was actually going to go into preprint servers. Yeah. Kind of ask about uh, kind of, I guess, your field's take on that. Yeah, look, in my case, I think the idea of getting certain pieces of information out in a controlled way is is helpful if it comes out early, especially when there are scenarios where publication timeframes are, you know, nine, ten months and people need to move fast towards journals. We've had situations with our granting systems in Australia where grants were actually deemed ineligible mm. Um, to be in the system because they talked about a couple of these preprint services. So these, for people who don't know, these are journal systems essentially that people can put their put their publications up onto before they're formally approved by a journal. So it's kind of just amongst friends, you might say, but those friends are across the whole world. Mm. But for some, when they put these into their grants uh, earlier this year, they were deemed ineligible as a result of, of breaching a, a condition for the grants. Which I think that's been changed, though. That's now, been changed now because it was yeah. absurd. It was. Um, absolutely Ridiculous. absurd. But, you know, these things all come with, with consequences. And I think I, I like the idea of the preprint servers and so forth where people can put up information and why not? You know, they could come on this show and talk about it. They could put it anywhere. It's just a place where they can put information up early as long as we treat it as, you know, hasn't been reviewed. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it should have a certain amount of credibility as a result. Mm, mm. Agreed. All right, Gracie, um, we better leave it there, but uh, we will keep you on the line because Jen's going to – I think she's going to talk about work and make us all feel – like we need to take a holiday in a few minutes. So, yeah, that'll be good. Thanks, Gracie. That's great. All righty. Uh, folks, we're going to take a break for some station announcements. We'll be back in just a moment. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. Uh, what have we got left? Uh, about 14 minutes or so, Dr. Jen. Is that enough time to get through your work discussion? <laughs> no, I'm not talking about work. Oh, Are you crazy? Always. 
No, no, I've been, I've been, this is serious, Shane. Serious face okay. on, please. I've been thinking about the fact that everyone I know, he's even laughing. <laughs> I've been thinking about the face. fact that everyone I know is really exhausted right yeah. now. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I the think last, most people are a bit strung out. Yeah, the last three years have been really tough. Yep. And so I've been thinking about what, I've been doing a bit of a thought experiment. What would it take for us to come back in 2023 to whatever your, you know, your work, your family, your volunteering, whatever it is that you'll be doing, feeling better? Because I feel like certainly people I know last summer went into the summer holidays thinking oh all I need is a couple of weeks off and I'll be feeling great again and it didn't happen yeah you know we came into 2022 feeling very fatigued and really burnt out so I've been trying to think okay well what can what can science tell us about what it might what we might do over the next month or so around obviously work and care and commitments and everything to come back feeling better and then the second part of my thinking is but we can't just say let's all go and have amazing holidays because everyone's feeling the pinch right you know whether you you rent, whether you've got a mortgage, whatever bills you pay, you know, money is feeling quite tight at the moment for everyone I know. So it's not helpful just to say, well, we all need to go and have a fancy holiday because we can't afford it. So I've been searching for what we can do that doesn't cost a lot of money that might help us come back next year feeling better. Oh, this sounds good. And it doesn't involve any flights because they're unreliable and stressful. No, no, no flights at all. Good. So on breakfast, there's just a a one minute um, uh, flashback to on breakfast on Wednesday, I talked about the fact that there was new research to show that above and beyond spending time in nature, we know spending time in nature is good for us, this new research found that being around birds made people feel happier and and calmer. So my first advice is go back and listen to Breakfasts from last week because there's this whole research about um, get out into natural places, but if you can see and hear birds, that will give you an even more, um, you know, health health benefits than otherwise. But what I wanted to talk about today... Unless they're magpies. And they're trying to poke your eyes yeah. out. Yeah, true. Yeah, stress. Yeah, so don't go there. But, don't go there. But it was interesting because, you know, they just got people to report back on how they felt at particular moments in the day. Mm. And it turned out that regardless of whether they could hear um, water or trees or whatever, if they could hear or see birds, there was extra health benefits and wellbeing benefits on top of that, which I thought was, you know, because I'm a bit of a bird nerd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was good. Yeah, yeah, I love birds. But what I thought we'd talk about today is noise. And an absence of I think noise. Gracie, Gracie's Gracie shaking like her head. Birds. Are you afraid of birds, Gracie? I wouldn't say I'm afraid of them. I don't particularly like them. I'm curious if there was like a rating scale of how much these people liked birds to begin with. It didn't matter if they didn't like birds at all. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was oh, okay. Yeah, Got it wasn't it. people who particularly liked birds. It was just random people. You need to be surrounded by birds, Gracie. She looks terrified. No, she doesn't like it. <laughs> All right, Gracie, we'll, no, we'll, thank you. we'll see if this, if this idea sits better with you. So what I thought we'd talk about today is noise and how detrimental noise can be for us and silence, which can be relatively cheap, if not free, to find how beneficial silence might be for yeah. us. So I'm going to give you the punchline. My pitch to you is we all need to find some silence these holidays. So, you know, I love listening to music as much as the next person. I'm constantly listening to radio and podcasts and audio books. I love all that. But there is actually evidence that just turning all of that off and being quiet is good for us. Oh, wow. Just don't switch off Triple R now, though. Yeah, because this is good. Yeah, noise. do this later. Yeah. <laughs> but so let's talk about noise then. I think most people are aware that noise pollution is a thing. So the word noise actually comes from the Latin and means pain or queasiness. Really? So what noise actually is. And there's lots of evidence that's come in through many, many, many decades of research to show that noise pollution can cause um, high blood pressure, difficulties concentrating, heart disease, sleeping problems, poor performance at work, poor performance at school, all of that stuff. There was a report back in 2011, so you know more than a decade, decade now um, from the World Health Organization. And they came out with a lot of statistics that I found pretty shocking. But one of them was that 1 million healthy life years are lost every year due to traffic-related noise in Western Europe. Hmm. So that means people who are losing years of healthy life because they're surrounded by traffic noise. And it's just the noise pollution that it's, they're involved yeah, in. Yeah, it's yep. just the noise pollution that they're exposed to. Wow. Um, there was a report in 2020 from the European Environment Agency and they found that one in five people is consistently exposed to levels of noise which are considered harmful to health. Hmm. So I know that's European data and you might say, oh, in Australia it's better, but I don't know, if you live in the city... It's pretty noisy. It's pretty noisy. Yeah, so we're, out, think- we're out in the Yarra Valley running a retreat earlier in the week and you know the one thing at night you realize is just stone 
stone quiet. You know, there's yeah, yeah. nothing. And was it good? Did you like oh, the quiet? Yeah. Look, I get a bit of tinnitus every now and then. So yeah, for me, yeah. sometimes the quiet can actually be a little torturous. Hard, but yeah. um, but generally speaking, it is very peaceful. Mm. And and believe it or not, being woken up by kookaburras is kind of yeah. nice too. You know, like yeah. it's a nice way to, you know, into the day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. So I guess, you know, it's it's just worth knowing that being exposed to excessive noise over long periods we have evidence that this leads to health problems. Mm. So it can be anxiety and depression, but it can also be cardiovascular disease. So there's no question that exposure to noise is a problem. Um, And there's been all these studies showing that kids who live in noisy places, you know, don't sleep well and then can't study at school and all all that sort of stuff. But so let's talk about silence then. What evidence do we have that the absence of noise is good for us? Well, actually, we have quite a lot of evidence. Um, One of the first studies I found was about 15 years ago, and scientists, they wanted to look at how people responded to different types of music how people responded physiologically to different types of music so people were sitting there with their headphones and they were listening to two minute tracks of different music so i think there were six different styles so some jazz and some blues you know whatever it is and they were looking at what was happening to people's stress responses and their heart rates and everything while listening and there was a two minute break between each track because they obviously wanted whatever the physiological response was to calm down (laughs) and so they measured breathing rate blood pressure a whole lot of other things and what they were expecting to find was that the tempo and the rhythm of the music had an impact on the person. The biggest finding actually was nothing to do with the music. It was something they didn't even set out to look at, and that was that two minutes of silence between Between the tracks had this massive relaxation effect. Mm, Interesting. So people sitting there just for two minutes in complete quiet, their whole body went into this beautiful relaxation state that we know is really good for us. Um, And then following on from that, in 2013, researchers looked at the um, effect of various sounds on mice to see what was going on for the mice. And so um, they used music, they used baby mouse calls, they used white noise, all these, you know, various things to see what happened to the mice. Um, And the silence was used as the control for the study, not thinking that silence in itself might be having an effect. Um, And without... To setting out to do this, what they showed was that two hours of silence a day had this profound effect on the brains of the mice to the extent that the brain, the, the mice actually started growing new brain cells in Whoa. the hippocampus, which is the area of your brain responsible for, you know, for emotions and memory. And it was only the mice that were exposed to silence for two hours a day that had that effect, which is pretty amazing. So what that means is that now there are researchers out there trying to understand what quiet actually does for us physically and and mentally. And I guess I want to say that, you know, I do recognise there is an equity thing here because one of the places being studies is flotation tanks. Right. And of course, not everyone can afford (laughs) to use a flotation tank. Um, And of course, some of the poorest people in the world live in some of the noisiest places and don't have the option of going somewhere quiet. So, uh, you know, I think let's be clear that not everyone has the luxury of silence. But I figure in Australia, many of us do have that luxury, that option. One one of the things this makes me think about straight away, though, is design of buildings and and so forth. So, for example, if you were designing a hospital ER where you want people to be as calm and chill as possible. Yep, and And able to recover. (laughs) And you design it the way we currently do, which is with noisy, reflective walls, the worst possible way you could design a space, 100%, um, based on what you're saying, then maybe, you know, when we're building new buildings or even just retrofitting existing ones, they should be built like this radio studio. I mean, we often have to say to people, as you know, Jim, when they come in here, put on the headphones because otherwise there's not a lot of warmth Mm. in the room because the room absorbs a lot of noise so there's Mm. no reverb and it sounds better for the listeners at the other end but you know for for someone who first comes in here it's like being in a a picture theater you know where it's kind of dead it's kind of dead feels a bit weird feels like it's sucking the life out of you in a way but (laughs) but actually it's because we're not used to that noise-free space Mm. and that's how you know, emergency rooms and other, you know, waiting areas for healthcare and that should all be designed. They don't, there is zero thought, as far as I can tell, put into lights, sound, yep. comfort of any regard. 
But isn't it interesting that mm. that you might have people who would say, "Oh, well, you know, we 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 might think about lighting because we think lighting is really important, or we might think mm. about what something looks like." But yeah, how often do we think about what something sounds, sounds like? like? Yeah. Um, and and this research, you know, as I said, flotation tanks are a big part of the new research. Yep. But there's also other research. Again, you won't be surprised involving people going out in nature, um, and you know, it, it's it's really clear that having times that are very very quiet is mm. very good for us. And yeah. so I just wonder if if over the you know the weeks to come. Maybe, even if you can't get to a flotation tank, and there is very good evidence that flotation tanks are very good for us, um, you know, decrease in stress and muscle tension and pain and symptoms of depression, you know, that, that all of that research is being done. Um, but they've done research also with just lots of different types of silence, and it becomes clear that you only need 10 or 15 minutes to have a marked improvement in your, in your sense of well-being. Mm. If you can be in a natural place, great. If you can kind of use some sort of a guided meditation to help you just really slow down and listen, that's also great. So there is evidence evidence behind all this stuff that we might yeah. think is good for us um, and it doesn't have to be complete silence you know an outdoor garden where there might be birds calling or you might hear whatever you just don't want to hear a leaf blower right like noises yeah. can be really annoying <laughs> if someone's got their leaf blower but um, but the other key finding just to share before we finish up is that it turns out from the research that intentionality is really important so if you're going to sit somewhere saying oh Dr Jen and Dr Shane said I should be silent but damn it I don't want to be silent it's unlikely to be helpful so you've got to it, you've got to actually want to be silent that's a key yeah. you know part to the health benefits um, and even just a couple of minutes a day shows mm. that it's going to be really beneficial to your um, stress response and you know if you can reduce nighttime noise if there is a way to reduce the nighttime noise that you're exposed yeah. to because even when you're asleep your body is still hearing sound and still translating that to a stress response in your body so even if you're able to sleep through it you've trained yourself to sleep through it actually you can still have major physiological stress if you yeah. live in a noisy place at night so if there's a way to diminish the noise you're exposed to at night that can be really helpful too yeah and i think a big part of it is artificial noises absolutely you know, we, can, we can handle a bit of noise when it's nature mm. we don't seem to be as bothered by that like if you're out and you hear birds and stuff that's mm. kind of fine it's even wind and stuff but artificial noises seem 100%. to really mess with us so yeah that's a big part of it and ferns yeah. go find some ferns yes. i love ferns <laughs> anyway. anyway i just think it's a bit of a good, good psa stuff. to know that there is definitely strong evidence out there that getting rid of some of the noise in our lives and just being peaceful even for 10 minutes a day so if you're yeah. feeling exhausted and the weeks ahead feel a bit overwhelming just carve out that little bit of quiet can hopefully help you to feel a bit better good advice thanks dr jen and good to see you today Lovely. yet again we'll hopefully see you next week definitely and gracie good to see you good luck with the sciatica the by by oh, no, i can't remember what it was i, I just put both <laughs> side both sided sciatica hope it doesn't come back yes thank you thanks so much great to talk to you today folks uh, we're going to hand over in just a moment to the great team from eat it i saw uh, cam and matt steadman poking around earlier so they're definitely here um cam always walks in and says last show today and i say <laughs> no sir no, it is not. Uh, we will be back next week. And we will be back uh, next week, folks, for one last show of Einstein and Go-Go before the end of the year. Until then, remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we'll chat to you in seven days. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.